Welcome everybody, this is Massage Therapy Now. My name is Damien John, and today I have with me Kathy Ryan, who is just north of Smithers in, where is it, Kathy? I'm in Telqua. Telqua. And you've been in Telqua for how many years now? I moved here to the Bulkley Valley in 2008. Okay. And where were you before the Bulkley Valley? London, Ontario. Oh, that's a big shift. It was. <laughs> um, do you like Telqua? It. I cannot even begin to tell you how beautiful it is here in the north. Well, this province in general, of course, mm. is stunning. Um, yeah. It, yeah. It's. I. I love to hike, so I'm in heaven. Yeah, that valley is amazing. Smithers, Hazelton, Telqua. Oh. Yeah, it's beautiful. Beautiful. If you're ever looking for the road trip of a lifetime, I suggest doing the drive from Terrace to Prince Rupert. It is just stunning. All right. So we have a bunch of questions and answers thought about and pre-talked about between Kathy and I that we're going to share with you today. Kathy has been in the profession. This is her 29th year. So a long and full career, I would imagine, Kathy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And diverse. And diverse. Yeah. I, I, 29 years, I, I've never done anything for 29 years except maybe breathe. <laughs> so um, <laughs> it's uh, it's been a real great pleasure to be able to talk to therapists who've been in the field for so long because there's so many things that have changed and positive things, perhaps even things that individuals think is negative. And it's very thought provoking to think about how much things have changed and, and where they're going. So we're going to talk about fascia. Kathy's a self-proclaimed fascia science nerd, as well as wound healing and scar tissue science, which are fields I'm very, very basic understanding around. So she can help fill in some of the gaps as far as anybody else who's in that space. We're just going to start with the basic question of what is fascia science, Kathy, and, and why should physical therapists take note of, of the science of fascia? I mean, what, what is fascia science? Well, I, I think that kind of brings us to the question of what is, what is fascia, uh, which is uh, often hotly debated, and there's all kinds of definitions out there. So I'm not an anatomist, so I'm not even going to get into the, to the mix of that. Um, but the fascia science takes a look at the structure and function of this tissue. Um, why does it matter to us as, as massage therapists or manual therapists? Well, because it has a profound uh, relationship with biomechanics, uh, neurology, lymphatics, and the immune system, which are you know pretty uh, important to us as manual therapists. Um, if you want to take a really deep dive into what it is and why it matters, I would direct you toward David Lazondak's book, and that's the title, Fascia, What It <laughs> Is and Why It Matters, available through Handspring, where he really goes deep into, um, you know, what it is and why it matters from a manual therapy perspective. But yeah, so just basically, you know, the fascia science is really looking at this tissue, uh, what function it serves, uh, what it is responsive to, uh, what it, it's doing when it's in its normal state and what kind of things can happen when it goes sideways. And then when it does go sideways, how can we help things get back on track? 
from the right. perspective. And as far as fascial science goes, is it fairly new as far as research or have we been doing research in fascia for good, good research, let's say? I would say, well, I mean, there's often this conversation that happens around is, are we talking about connective tissue? What's the difference between connective tissue and fascia? And what I, one of the thing, recent things I've noticed is a, a number of the who's who of fascial dumb <laughs> is now calling it fascial connective tissue because it, it, it really is a part of our connective tissue system. As manual therapists, we, we kind of think of the fascia as the stuff that has maybe more biomechanical kind of implications. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the, the science, the research around it, I would say from, from our perspective, from more of a biomechanical perspective is relatively new. Connective tissue research is not new. Um, especially histology of connective tissue has been researched for a really long time in a number of disciplines. But yes, from more from the manual therapy perspective and its role biomechanically, I would say it is fairly new. Um, right around early 2000s when we started to see some fascial research. And then in 2007 was the first International Fascial Research Congress. And that's when fascial research, fascial science just exploded. And I don't remember the numbers, but I remember Tom Finley talking about, you know, kind of doing a PubMed search and about, you know, fascia and manual therapy and, you know, maybe getting a handful of hits versus after 2007, we're talking Mm -hmm. thousands of hits. So after that first uh, Congress, that's when I think it just really exploded on the scene. And if we're speaking to the science of it, that means there's a scientific language around it, which will, I guess, segue into our second point of conversation. But I'm thinking before I head there, what, as far as fascial learning goes and our education, base education as massage therapists in Western Canada and BC in particular, how good of a knowledge do you think we come out of school with as it relates to fascia? Because it is really complex and the the science, like you said, is blown up. So are we keeping, are we keeping up with it as far as our basic education goes, do you think? Um, I mean, from, from what I've seen, there's some pretty good foundation there. I mean, if we take a look at the interjurisdictional competency document, um, it identifies that that's one of the competencies that is required. So because we have the national standards for education and training in the regulated provinces, um, there's an expe- expectation that is being taught. I think one of the things that is unique about BC um, is that we also have the guidelines for foundational knowledge. Uh, the other provinces don't have such a document. Ontario used to have a document like that years ago, and I only know this because I taught at one of the schools in Ontario years ago, and I remember a document like that. We called it the core curriculum. It disappeared. I don't know why or when. Um, But if you take a look at the the most recent revision of the GFK, the Guidelines for Foundational Knowledge, um, you know, it, it really identifies what the school should be teaching um, with regard to fascia science. So if, if the schools are teaching that material, 
then I would say, yes, there's a pretty good entry-level foundation of knowledge that RMPs here in BC are coming out of school with. But it, it is just a matter of how well the instructors at the various schools are, are teaching that material, whether right. or not they themselves are staying right. pretty current with the science. Um, how would you explain fascia basically to a client, say if you have a minute to explain fascia as a, as a therapist who focuses on it and from a manual therapy perspective, what are you doing and how do you use, how do you speak to your clients in lay people's terms about it? Um, well, well, one thing I will say that I've noticed living here in the North, um, because of the kind of place that we live in, um, farmers and <laughs> right. hunters get it really quick because they butcher their own animals. So they've seen it. So it's really easy to describe for them this, this tissue around the tissue that links all the sausages together. <laughs> <laughs> So really easy to describe it to those clients. I, just in general, I just talk to people about how, you know, in anatomy, there's this tendency to chop the body up into individual parts, but there's a way for our body to connect and communicate physically through the connective tissue or fascia that links the calves to the hamstrings to the gluteals or whatever the case may be. And when I'm teaching this stuff, I kind of break it down into, look, with, with, when we're talking in terms of fascia, we're talking about loose stuff, which uh, kind of gets into uh, Dr. Jean-Claude Guimberto's work, where he used endoscopy to visualize this loose, almost looks like wet, juicy bubble wrap kind of stuff in there in between and around that allows for sliding and gliding. Mm -hmm. And then there's the dense of, denser stuff, which is more of the denser collagen, you know, like our IT band or our tendons or that kind of thing. So I'll kind of use those things when I'm teaching to talk a bit about anatomically what this stuff looks like. And then as well, just the histology of it, the anatomy of it then is a representation of what kind of function it will serve in the human body. Mm -hmm. I think one of the biggest aha moments for me in terms of the fascia stuff is when I went to the first Congress in 2007 and Dr. Guimberto showed his video of this loose stuff it was an absolute mind blowing moment for me because I started to think about when we move, not only does our tissue deform or stretch, but it also needs to slide in reference to one another for us to have this ease of movement. And it also got me thinking more about the fluid environment. So rather than in terms of just having come some kind of impact on the denser collagen fibers, can our hands also um, instigate or elicit some type of shift or change in the fluid environment in and around those denser types of tissues. And the fascia science uh, seems to be supporting that, yes, this stuff is mutable. And the way that we use our hands, and not only our hands, but uh, thermal therapy like warmth can also potentially have an impact on this mutable fluid interstitial fluid, ground substance, whatever you want to call it, uh -huh. the goo, as Tom Myers calls it. <laughs> um, so it got me thinking a lot more about fluid. So I would say now that when I'm working with my hands, um, you know, I'm, I'm, the intention is more about 
some changes in the fluid environment than it is the actual structural struts right so the fascia conference you've you've have you attended all of those international fascia conferences all but one i missed amsterdam okay and there was one just this last year in november in 2018 correct yes and in berlin i had both attended and presented very cool and susan cooper was there too right she's from bc susan Susan Chappelle, Chappelle. That's right. In my brain, yeah. I called her Cooper for some reason. But yeah, Susan Chappelle. Um, and was she presenting there too? She didn't present at the Fascia Congress, but she presented at the Osteopathic okay. Conference that was hosted right on the heels of right. the Fascia Conference. But Susan was the very first massage therapist to ever present at a Fascia Conference when it was held in Vancouver in 2012. I think that was the third, third or fourth Congress. I think it was the third Congress. Susan was the first RMT to ever present at the fascia conference. What was your presentation this last year? Um, I co-facilitated a pre-conference workshop on scar tissue management with Nancy King Smith, who I co-wrote the book with. That's a pretty big deal to be presenting at a world or international fascia conference congratulations thank you so much it was such a surreal and humbling experience because i am such a fascia nerd and i've been attending and following these conferences and reading all the research i have all the books so for me to actually um be invited to present would be like a soccer player getting to play in the World yeah, Cup. No doubt. Like, <laughs> yeah, It was just, like I say, it was the most surreal and humbling experience. Uh-huh. It was just a, quite a career highlight for sure. Did you have fun? I had so much fun. <laughs> I, love, <laughs> I love this conference. You know, as a massage therapist, there's two conferences that I always, well, actually three conferences that I always try to attend. The RMTBC's annual symposium, I always try to attend that one. Mm-hmm. The International Fascia Research Congress and the Massage Therapy Foundation's International Massage Therapy Research Conference. I always try to go to those conferences because there's so much fun there's such a great collegial atmosphere, and I always uh, come away with uh, great information that helps me um, improve what I'm doing right. in my practice for my patients. So incredibly worthwhile in terms of time and money, in your opinion. Oh, yeah. I, I, I don't think any massage therapist should miss any of those three conferences, in my humble opinion. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I've, I've attended the RMTBC symposiums, a number of them. And even though I'm retired, not working as a massage therapist anymore, they're always profoundly interesting and thought provoking and useful if you're, even if you're not working hands on in terms of understanding and getting a better sensibility around what people are doing and how to speak to things. And yeah, they're just, really, really invaluable. And uh, you and I and most everybody else that I've talked to that have attended good quality ones come away from them feeling uh, even energized to do better work and to do more thoughtful work. And I think that benefit alone is, is what would make them worth 
attending because we were just talking before we started recording a recording about being insulated from one another and you mm -hmm. as a rural therapist uh, would experience that most especially if you didn't travel oh ab absolutely mm -hmm. can you speak to that a little bit the feeling of insulation from from living rurally and being a rural therapist and how you make that not be uh, a thing that that keeps you that keeps you from from learning and progressing as a, as an RMT? Well, I, I mean, I remember back in the late eighties when I was in massage therapy <laughs> school, <laughs> I remember one of my instructors talking about, you know, how it can become such a silo for us because of the dynamics of our clinical environment. Well, we're generally working one-to-one, -one, you know, unless we work in a clinic with other um, RMTs or other healthcare professionals, but even then, individuals that I know that work in those environments say we rarely see each other because mm -hmm. we're busy all the time with our patients. So I remember my instructor talking about that, and one of the things she encouraged us to do uh, was to get out there, you know, to join our provincial association, attend workshops, attend conferences, maybe get a group of your colleagues and once a month you get together for uh, some kind of beverage and, and discuss, you know, clinical things that are going on and brainstorm with each other. So she really encouraged us to do that from the get-go and I really mm -hmm. took that to heart. Um, so, I, you know, I tried to do that all along throughout my career. You know, I've been very fortunate because I mentioned my career has been very diverse. You know, I, I, I've taught the entry to practice and I teach continuing education and I've been, you know, involved with the associations and uh, involved with the regulators in, in a ver variety of capacities. Um, so it's really helped me to be connected to my profession and to my peers. And certainly now that we have social media, the internet, these types of things, I think it's easier today than it was in, the, mm -hmm. in 1990 when these kind of things were not around. So, you know, there's, there's, it makes it much more easy, I think, to collaborate and engage in conversation. And then, you know, folks like yourself, Damien, who are doing a great service to our profession by by hosting podcasts, you know, also a way to to interact, you know, yeah. professionally as well. I, I agree with even I, I haven't I wasn't in the profession as long as you've been, but I went to school in the early two thousands and then popped out and I worked uh, both I worked in Victoria, but then I moved to Prince George and then I became even more rural, moving to the Kootenays and. I found mm -hmm. as I moved to these smaller spaces, I got more and more insulated. And my uh, propensity as a therapist was never to get too crazily engaged with the association or the regulators or anything. And I think it was to, to my detriment that I did that. It was only near the end and after I had stopped doing hands-on work that I had started to attend more of these things. And I felt... Like I had done myself, yeah, a disservice as a as an RMT by not having attended those things earlier. So, if anybody out there has any hesitancy to attend such things, like you say, they're super fun and they're really great learning environments. And I would say they bolster an individual to 
want to keep interested in what's going on and keep practicing because there's so much information out there. You, you definitely can never know everything. The hive mind or the the cross pollination that can happen at such things is is pretty awesome. Oh, and, and you know, and all of those things that I've done, I, I feel have really supported me well, you know, individually. But all of those things that I've done, I, I think, are engaged in, have really helped me become a better therapist. Mm -hmm. You know, to help expand my understanding of our profession from a variety of perspectives, because it is it is very different when you're you're engaged as a committee or board member with the college. Um, you know, you know, one of my things that I've often said is that you don't really understand something until you've walked a mile in, in, in their shoes, right? right. So there, there have been times over the course of my career, um, you know, when, I, when something has come up from the college and I'm like, you know, what were they thinking about that? You know, but then I missed all the valuable context of the discussion that may have went on that led to the, the decision that the college made. And that really kind of hit home for me when I spent time, you know, as a, as a committee and board member with the college, um, that there's a context often to a discussion that happens before a decision is made. And, and it's made me very, very mindful of that, you know, not only from, you know, the regulator perspective, but our association or, you know, whatever it is, you know, it just made me very mindful to, to really delve in and ask questions and understand the context before I make an assumption about something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's basic, good communication stuff. <laughs> yes. <laughs> to use the technical term stuff. Um, I like, I like that. Yeah. Let's segue into that question. Like the loose stuff and the dense stuff. Yeah, yeah. Or the, what was it? What was it? <laughs> the goo. The goo, yeah. <laughs> I, I love it when, when educators use use terms like that because, it, I don't know, it, it plays on the, the fun of, of educating yourself and not being so high-minded that you can't use simple words like goo and stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. When you stated or you shared with me that a lot of your science nerd stuff is around fascia and healing and scar tissue and and those types of things it made me think of the 2016 symposium that was attended i attended that one and uh walter fritz was there who's a, a fascial educator mm -hmm. and he spoke to the idea of language and fascia and basically what i understood him to be saying was we have these gurus in the manual therapy world yeah. who have created lingo and perspective around how it is that we work. And I know for sure that I was caught up in any number of them, probably three or four of them stood out as far as, wow, this one really speaks to me. I understand what they're saying. And it, it helps me lay a foundation of understanding for both myself and my patients. Um, but then he was speaking to this idea that some of the time those educators have not been very responsible in the ethics of their language. And it's not just fascia, but it's probably every aspect of the work that we do as medical professionals. Can you speak to the, the idea of how the language has changed for you over all of your educating yourself and whether you share a similar, a similar perspective as Walter Fritz. 
or any of those those guys who've shifted? Yeah, I um, I'm I'm not inclined to be a guru following kind of person. It's just not in my nature, let's say. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so when I when I started to take a real interest in fascia connected tissue, I thought to myself, if I'm if I'm really going to direct my career pathway down that road. I think it's important to, for me to look at all of the, let's say, most prominent perspectives or approaches to working with the tissue. So that was one of the ones that I, I one of the approaches that I took. So that I, I didn't get. I think it was Tom again. I'm quoting Tom Myers, but I think it was Tom Myers who made a comment about you know in manual therapy, don't get married to something, meaning don't get mm-hmm. married to a particular technique or perspective because you know as science unfolds we're just going to end up changing our mind and i think that's a really important point that that tom made and and i adhere to that too so you know uh, um, in exploring things i i don't take anything let's say as an absolute for me it has to make it has to be physiologically plausible let's say right um, but yeah, so so for me, I, I studied various approaches so I could understand, um, you know, the, the various perspectives. And uh, I'll draw your attention to um, Sandy Fritz's book, Fundamentals of Therapeutic Massage. And I don't remember which chapter or which page, but in there she talks about the therapeutic loading of fascia. And she breaks it down into there are five ways that we can therapeutically load this tissue. And I had a chance to talk to Sandy about this, and she gave Nancy and I permission to put this in our book too. And I think it's in chapter nine in our book. But her and Leon Chattel came about this. It's like, you know what? You can call a technique whatever you want to call it. You can, and I don't mean disrespect to anybody, but you can call it the river flowing over rocks or my blue pony, whatever you want uh-huh. to call it. But there's only about five different ways that we can therapeutically load this tissue. We can tension it, we can torsion it, we can compress it, we can bend it, uh, we can shear it. And so if you really break the technique down into the actual way we apply our hands, I think it maybe removes some of the mystery, which probably doesn't bode well for some of these instructors who want to market a particular trademark or mm-hmm. something, let's say, a proprietary type of thing. Um, but but when I looked at that, I was like, oh my god, that's so true and <laughs> brilliant, uh-huh. Sandy. Thank you. <laughs> so you know, so that's kind of like when I'm looking at language about you know what we're calling it and what we're doing. You know what? If we can just break it down into the actual mechanics of it, and then the physio physiology of it um i think that's kind of what makes sense to my to my mind right did i did i answer what you were asking for yeah totally and i think uh, it's a big it's a big question to answer in in five minutes in terms of uh, you know how does one approach such things both ethically and responsibly one of my thoughts is how does a especially a newer therapist know who's quality in terms of education and who's staying abreast of the current research is it 
part of our due diligence as individual therapists to check that out and how do we avoid getting caught up in something that's a little bit shady, let's say, or if, even if it's not shady, irresponsible in how mm -hmm. they decide to both teach you and speak to your clients or patients? Mm -hmm. um, how, how to audit your teacher? Yeah, essentially, yeah. <laughs> 101? 101. <laughs> um. You know, some of the questions that I would ask myself, because I still take courses, you know, I'm almost 30 years in and I'm still a voracious learner. Um, I, it's part of my nature and I think it's, it's part of my professional responsibility as well. Mm -hmm. So I think for me, some of the things that I, I will take a look at is, you know, is what they're presenting, do they have some evidence you know, some kind of evidence base that they're, they're sharing. Like, do they have a reason if they're not doing research themselves, because I don't do research myself, but when I teach a course, I have a resource list that I provide for anyone taking my course of, you know, here's some of the research that, that I'm using to support what I'm saying and what I'm doing, you know? So, and, and some of it is, you know, I think our own due diligence about, really understanding our foundational science so that I can say more critically look at something and say, well, that just physiologically doesn't seem to be plausible or, okay, that kind of looks like it could make sense. You know, and I, and I think it's just, you know, some of it too is like, there can be some really great instructors out there, but, you know, um, maybe their delivery leaves something to be desired or maybe their approach just doesn't seem to jive for you. And that's where I think, you know, maybe just talking to your colleagues and saying, Hey, you know, have you done a course with so-and-so? How did you find right. it? Um, a lot of instructors will, um, like I know Nancy and I, we, we always have feedback forms so people can give us feedback on Nancy's website. She has some of the feedback there that you can see. The, you know, feedback that people have given us about our, our course. Um, you know, so I think those are just some of the things, but, um, you know, I think sometimes word of mouth or asking, mm -hmm. you know, some of your RMT colleagues, have you taken this course? You know, how did you find it? Did you learn something from it? Not only did you learn something, but is it applicable to your practice? Right. Have some care around. Yeah. Yeah. I think for me as a, as an educator, one of the most important things for me is, am I giving you something that you can actually use mm -hmm. in your practice as a massage therapist, that you can integrate it into what you're already doing quite easily, rather than having to totally reconstruct the way that you do things. Right. Yeah. I have some care around who you choose as an instructor or as a, as a student uh, of of that method and yeah double double check use the forums that are out there perhaps and don't just choose the cheapest course <laughs> which is something i often did because i was so rural or i just was yeah. cheap as heck um i would i would uh, often choose a course that was more inexpensive versus one that would serve me better or people were raving about let's say and yeah they're it affects the quality of your work at the end of the day. So it's kind of like, do you want to, to reflect this high quality of work or do you want to just be kind of mediocre perhaps? Yeah. I mean, that's a whole, that's a whole show in and of itself. And 
I could start. It is. And if, you know, I, I, you know, when I have opportunities to speak and, you know, the, sometimes the question I'll get is, you know, what's piece of it, one piece of advice that you would give, you know, other RMTs or new RMTs starting out. And I'd say, never take a course unless you think it can provide something of value for you. Mm -hmm. So, you know, don't just take something so you can check off your CE box. Yeah. Um, you know, really, there's all kinds of stuff out there, and, and not all of it is. Again, you know, we have the the internet now, so we have web-based stuff that doesn't require you to travel and pay, you know, travel expenses and all that kind of stuff. So there's some really great online stuff out there. Um, but that's one thing that I can say about myself as a massage therapist in almost 30 years. I've never taken a course just to fulfill a CE requirement. I've only ever gone after things that I thought really added some value to my practice, mm-hmm. something that would help me improve as an RMT. Well, I am not such a paragon of virtue as you. I, I, I would pick. <laughs> no, I'm, I, no, I'm not. Like, like you, I'm frugal. I'm frugal, and I don't want. I don't want to be throwing my money on something uh-huh. that I'm not going to get. You, you know, get some value out of. It, it, yeah. Really, it's not virtue. It's just being frugal. <laughs> yeah. No, I didn't mean to. It's not a put down by any stretch. It's more of a. No, no. It's more of a uh, thinking about my own process, and if I were to advise a younger version of myself, it would be something around what what you're saying where even if you're saving your money to spend it on a particular thing or to not think at it from the perspective of this will only give me continuing education credits because um what at the end of the day what are you trying to do as a person who helps people from a manual therapy perspective and if it fulfills your morals and your wants and needs you're going to do better work, you're going to be more interested in your work. And if you go down the road where you're always only doing stuff for continuing education, as well as what's the cheapest, yeah, you, you, you could end up in a place where you're, you're just not that interested in learning. You're not that interested in doing your work. Um, I think that's part of what happened to me more near the end of my hands-on working career. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's other things that were involved in that, but I think a part of it was was that. And I think it's useful to have these conversations around how do you maintain interest in this this work because it's it's beautiful work. Uh, manual therapy is is some of the best work I think humans can do for one another, and yet it's easy to to burn out. It's easy to lose interest. It's easy to you know, twenty nine years is 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 a real accomplishment in terms of this style of work. And so very useful, I think, for individuals who are earlier in their in their careers as manual therapists who want to stay in the career in in the field to hear what other people have done. To stay interested and successful and yeah, stay in love with, with the work that they're doing because it is some of the I'm biased, but it is some of the best work I think human beings can do with each other. Oh, I, I, I mean, obviously, I, I, I agree. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and I think for me, I kind of quickly realized um, as well uh, that if I, if I were really going to stay invested in this as a, as a lifelong profession, let's say, I needed to diversify. Mm-hmm. Because just, and I don't mean just in any kind of demeaning way, but if, if uh, a practice was the only thing that I was doing, 
I could see where burnout could happen quite quickly for people. So I think that's why it was so important for me to, I had an opportunity to start teaching, so I did. Um, and then I had an opportunity to start teaching some continuing education, so I did. I had an opportunity to start writing, so I did. I had an opportunity to be a subject matter expert and examiner for the CMTO, so I did. You know, so it was that diversity that has really kept it exciting and interesting for me because I'm I'm not only learning the next technique, the mm -hmm. new technique. I, quite honestly, I don't really take technique courses much anymore. You know, I'm 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 more in the research and science kind of conferences, uh, which is why I like I love the RMTBC symposium because it's always top notch. The international experts coming in to talk about you know the foundational science of what they're doing and, and other things, um, as well as you know some of our what we often refer to as our soft skills so the professionalism and ethics part of it because the therapeutic relationships that really ties into some of that biopsychosocial elements of the value of what we do, we do in our practice too so you know i think really in getting into learning from all those different perspectives have helped to keep it really fresh for me even almost yeah. 10 years later uh, that's a good segue into a question I, I had for you around authoring. So you're a person who has some information and you obviously want to put it down in some format. So let's say you want to write something. How does a, how does a person take that information, the, the information of being a therapist and turn it into a book? How did you do it in, in a less than five minutes could you can you explain uh some of the basics <laughs> that you did in order to become an author as as far as manual therapy goes yeah it was, it was kind of an interesting trajectory or progression for me i started out uh two years after i graduated from massage therapy school i had an opportunity to teach at the school where i had done my training so teaching requires you to write curriculum. So I started writing curriculum. And, and even prior to that, as a young person, I liked writing. Like in high school and stuff, I would write short stories and stuff. So I always had an interest in writing. So then I started writing curriculum, and then I started item writing for the CMTO. And then, uh, then I had an opportunity to start writing some articles for Massage Therapy Canada magazine. So I started doing some article writing. and. Uh, I had an opportunity through the magazine to cover uh, the International Fascia Research Congress and the International Massage Therapy Conference, so kind of highlights. So I started writing articles, and then um, I won't get into the whole story, but I ended up meeting Mary Law, who's one of the owners of Handspring Publishing. All they publish is body work and movement modality types of books. So I had a conversation with her. She was looking for someone to do a book on scar tissue, paired me up with Nancy Keeney-Smith, and that's how the book came came about. So I've always loved to write. That was always there mm -hmm. for me. Um, so when there were opportunities to, to write within the profession, I jumped on it. And then it just kind of evolved that way from curriculum to articles to a book. You love writing, and you've taught, for many years and you've educated for many years and then you paired with another individual who is also interested in what you're interested in then you decide to 
amalgamate the information? How, do, how does that process or what does that process look like? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I had written a lot of uh, uh, courses, both, you know, continuing ed and online courses. So I had a fairly substantial body of information to work from. And this kind of ties into one of the questions about how does mm -hmm. fascia science relate to wound healing and scar tissue science. Um, and there's a very profound relationship there because oftentimes when massage therapists are working with scars, we're working with fibrotic collagen, which is part of the connective tissue mm -hmm. and fascia and all of that. Um, but um, yes, yeah, so Nancy had presented her burn scar research at the International Massage Therapy Research Conference. Mary Law was looking for someone to write a book on manual therapy approaches to scar tissue. She approached Nancy. Nancy said, I'm not a writer. You need to pair me up with someone. Mary paired her up with me. And I, I and Nancy's been teaching scar tissue courses for, for decades. So we both already had a fairly substantial body of information to draw from. So then it was just a matter of her and I, because she's in Gainesville, Florida, connecting via phone calls and, uh, um, you know, Skyping. And we hashed out, you know, um, like a framework, and then we just divvied up. Okay, you take that chapter, I'll take this chapter, and then we just kind of added to and edited each other's stuff. And then, of course, the publisher, the the real editor, editor who who knows grammar <laughs> much better than than I do, <laughs> you know, uh, gets it all cleaned up for you and makes it look really professional. So, so that's how Nancy and I did it. So we had, we had most of the material and bits and pieces from courses we had both taught over the years. I mean, there was a bit of new material in the, in the book for sure. Um, but the lengthiest part was really um, getting all the research, all the citations to support what we we're saying because we wanted to make sure that it was very evidence-based and I'm going to do a shout out to the RMPBC here again, um, because the book would not be what it is. Um, we often get compliments on how well it's supported by research. And that would not have happened if I did not have an association that right. makes a database available to us and, and a librarian who can get full text copies of things that we wouldn't otherwise be able to get our hands on. Yeah, the, the librarian is a <laughs> incredible resource if you're a part of the RMTBC. Oh, she, Christina is amazing. Um, I, it was very rare. Like I would cut and paste the citation, Christina, can you get me this? Chris, Christina, can you get me this? And sometimes it was fairly, I wouldn't say obscure journals, but journals that aren't as well known and they're not like in you know, kind of the mainstream of things. Um, and because of her connections with uh, other librarians at, at universities and stuff, it was very rare that she could not get her hands on something. For uh -huh. So, um, yeah, we really appreciate what she did for us because it really helped uh, make the book what it is. What's the, what's the title of your book? Traumatic Scar Tissue Management, Massage Therapy Principles, Practices, and Protocols. And who would you recommend this book to, uh, aside from everybody? <laughs> <laughs> I would say anybody who's interested in in scar tissue, anybody who's interested in lymphatic uh, foundational science or fascial foundational science, you know, and when I talk in terms of scar tissue, I'm not only talking about post-surgical stuff, I'm talking about overuse kinds of 
repetitive strain injuries because that's essentially mm. remodeled, you know, problematic um, collagen too. So, it, you know, I think, yes, it can, can pretty much apply to just about any of us in, in practice. And anybody that wants a review on the foundational knowledge around wound healing, inflammation, the lymphatic system, the nervous system, the fascial connective tissue system. Mm -hmm. Would you say as a person who has a great interest in fascial and connective tissue that you can't work it well without having a base knowledge or even something more than a base knowledge on how our body scars and how scar tissue works and is, is, is it very different or can you work exclusive or because or, I mean any human that's had a life must have a reasonable amount of scar tissue in different places in their body. Yeah, you know, I, I think the more we understand about process, um, that really supports our critical thinking capabilities. So one of the things that I often say when I'm teaching is if we understand process, it's, it's a less of a likelihood that we're going to be stumped in, a, in our clinical practice and figuring out what, how much, you know, the dosage variables and when should I start doing this and when should I start doing that. So if we understand process, <clears throat> like the wound healing process or any other process, uh, I think it just, we can get more consistently reliable mm -hmm good out outcomes. I think, you know, and I don't ever want to discount um, the intuitiveness of our hands. You know, I've, I've met individuals over the course of my life and career who did not do any kind of formal training, but they just naturally had incredible hands mm -hmm. and delivered an amazing massage, you know, and to never undervalue the, the work that they're doing or those RMTs who aren't as science mm -hmm. um inclined as i am that there's this you know intuitive thing that they have but i think if we really want to get good consistent outcomes with any particular client that comes in on any given day um, i think having this foundation understanding um, for me has been really helpful to get those consistently reliable outcomes for my patients Yes. I think any one of us as a massage therapist, if we've been a massage therapist for a few years, we will say, man, I was just on fire that day. <laughs> I, I was like smoking. I delivered such a great treatments that day. And then we've had other days when it's been like, meh. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think any one of us, you know, we have these days where it's like, oh my God, everything I did just worked so great. And then the next day I'm doing the same thing. And it's like, why isn't that working? Uh -huh. Yeah, it's a, you know, so I think when we under, yeah, if we understand the, the, you know, the foundational science and process and stuff like that, I think it helps, it helps support our critical thinking piece because our hands, the, our, our client, you know, can be different on any given day. Yeah, that's a piece of information that I want to get, I probably do a, a number of shows on the intuitive space because the bias mm -hmm. these days is towards science, but like you say, there is a real strong, a strong set of information out there that intuition, as far as 
working with individuals from whatever perspective you work with intuition when working with people as it relates to therapy is a huge, huge factor and cannot be, you can't ignore it. It's not something that would be prudent to ignore. And, and it's one of those places that's very, very hard to science it up. Um, so yeah, there's a whole, there's a whole show in there. Maybe we can, <laughs> maybe we can come back to that in some future episode because it's a, it's a place that I'm really curious about. I would say I was never the sciencey therapist. I was always more in tune with what was going on in front of me and what I was feeling and, and that kind of thing and, and would get feedback of that nature as to, wow, you're very intuitive. And, and so I'm really curious about, about what other people think about intuition, but we've already been talking for 50 ish minutes and I know you've got a life and, uh, can I jump in with one real quick more, yeah, Kathy, one, one more please. piece of information mm -hmm. here? Just, you know, and I think that's such an important thing, Damien, because, you know, there's so much going on during a massage therapy treatment session. And I just want to really quickly draw attention to uh, a colleague, our RMT colleague of ours in Ontario, his name is Richard, I don't know if he pronounces it Lebert or Liebert, but he has a... Um, he has a blog called RMT Education Project. And on there, he has a conceptual framework, how massage therapy works. And he talks about affective touch, contextual factors, um, endogenous pain modulators, and mechanical factors. All these things are going on mm -hmm. at the same time. So I don't know if there would be any way, I'm not a researcher, but I could only imagine that if a researcher is trying to figure out exactly what agent is driving what in any given moment, I think that would yeah. be virtually impossible to do so because there's so much going on in concert. You know, whether we're, we're, we, we view ourselves as working from an intuitive kind of place, there's still physiology mm -hmm. going on. If you're touching somebody, there's something physiologically happening there's something psychologically happening, you know, neurologically happening, all these things are happening at the same time. So I know for me, I never discount the value of any of those things because they're all going on at the same time. I'm a science nerd, I love science. Um, looking at the science closely has helped me to understand better if I'm using my hands this way, will I get a better outcome than if I use my hands that way? And I would say, yes, for me, it's really helped me improve the quality of my work as well as the consistency of the outcomes. Um, but I think there's so much going on at any given time. I think it's important for us to um, be respectful of yes. all of that. Yeah, well said. And it's, like you say, this incredibly complex thing I, I think it would be really inter is. interesting to have a number of people speak to this idea of intuition whether they're very sciencey or very intuitive maybe i'll have a panel of people come on the podcast and we can speak to this idea of intuitive work because it's a very important piece of of working with anybody from a therapy perspective even if you go to see a doctor intuition is incredibly useful from to get good results, I think. Uh, and yeah, I, I'm, I'm always curious as to what is this thing we're calling intuition and uh, what everybody thinks 
or what individuals think about that piece and, and what a really sciencey person would think about intuition versus somebody who never thinks of it from that perspective or somebody who comes from a different cultural background who may have a completely different uh, mm -hmm. interaction with the idea of intuition. Yeah, that's a future show mm -hmm. and one I... Oh, that sounds like fun. <laughs> Sign me up. All right. So Kathy's coming <laughs> on the future intuition panel and uh, we'll recruit a few more. If you're keen on being part of that, uh, send me or the RMTBC an email and we can arrange such a future show. Kathy, if anybody wants to get in touch with you, is there a way that they can reach you easily? Email. Email. Is there an email that you would want to share? Yeah, it's very simple. It's C ryan rmt at gmail.com all right we'll put that in the show notes too so if people sure. have trouble auditorially taking that simple gmail and using it and they can contact you about any questions they may have around what we've talked about today as well Absolutely. as any other curiosities sure awesome. right kathy super appreciative of your time and all of your great information we might have to come back on the show and address some more of it because we just hit some highlights i think so yeah I, I appreciate your time and thoughtfulness as to the questions today and maybe we'll talk to you again in the future you're always welcome back thank you so much damien i really appreciate uh you inviting me uh, to sit down and have a conversation with you this has just been such a pleasure mm -hmm. and to anybody out there listening, again, Kathy's keen on taking questions. It sounds like she's got incredible amounts of time, effort, thought, uh, introspection put into fascia and scar tissue. And she's an amazing resource here in the province of BC. And if you live around Telqua, maybe you can have a cup of tea with her and... <laughs> and get really deep into some of this stuff. Yes, or, or come to the RMTBC uh, symposium All right. um, in April. Uh, I will be there. That's the oncology one, yes? Yes. Yes. Okay, so Kathy's going to be at the symposium in April. So hit her up if you have any questions in person that you need to talk to her about. And until then, we'll chat at you guys next time. <laughs>